Hi everyone and welcome to the Pama podcast. It's really great to be with you all again. Hope you're all keeping safe and well. Um, I'm delighted to welcome a new guest to the show today, someone whose work I've um, become familiar with recently and um, has written a great book that we're going to talk about today. Um, Chuck DeGroat, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation because it's uh, your... Your latest book, um, When Narcissism Comes to Church, um, is a really interesting topic. Um, I haven't managed to, as I said, like I said before we started recording, I haven't managed to get to read the book yet because it's not actually come out in the UK yet. But um, uh, but uh, it's definitely a subject that I think is really, really important. Um, so, yeah, this is going to be great. Um, so just before we get into that... Just tell us a bit about you and your, kind of your story and what you do. Yeah. Well, so for the last seven years I've been teaching. Uh, I'm a professor of pastoral care and Christian spirituality at uh, Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. But So, so it's, that's fun uh, because before that I was a pastor. Uh, mm. I've, I've always had a sort of hybrid kind of occupation, vocation I've uh, I'm a therapist, a licensed therapist, a pastor. I do spiritual direction and retreats, and like you, I write. And so I, it's always been fun to kind of live in the interplay of all of those. But, but yeah, over the last seven years or so, I've been, I've been teaching uh, students who aspire to become pastors and trying to convince some of them not to become pastors, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and mostly working with them on. Um, matters of emotional and spiritual health, uh, their own stories, looking at their own stories. A lot of them are just not familiar with their own stories and their own pain, their own trauma. So introducing them to, to those kinds of things mm-hmm. along with, um, yeah, continued counseling practice and uh, writing. So I, I get to do some really fun things. Yeah, it sounds all really interesting. Like, it's a lot of great, I've got a lot of great work. Um, yeah, being a th- my my spiritual director is actually a qualified therapist as well, so it's really interesting. Like some of our sessions are really interesting um, because uh, yeah, therapy kind of it's kind of been like spiritual therapy working with them. So yeah, yeah there are some crossovers with that. Yeah, but that's that must be fascinating, fascinating yeah. work. And I love that you're trying to convince people not to become pastors. Cause I think. Like that's like no. I think we like some people just think they become. I think some people want to become pastors because they think that's what they should do, or like, yeah. or just because they're getting a theology degree, they have to become a pastor. And sometimes yeah. that's not what what the yeah. world needs, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's really interesting. And you've written a few books, haven't you, as well? Uh, not just the one you've just just yeah. just come out, but the um, you've written some others. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I have. Um, yeah, there. Uh, so it began with a book. I, I waited to publish. Uh, I had an opportunity, and I, I waited until I was forty. I, I just, I really felt this sense of, of um, needing to live a bit of life before having a book come out. And so, my first book is called "Leaving Egypt: Finding God in the Wilderness Places," and that's kind of about the the long and winding wilderness journey that we're all on. Well, mm. I. Uh, a book called Toughest People to Love, um, which is really about engaging really difficult people in our lives. Uh, a little bit like the narcissism book that I just published, but then a book out of that called Wholeheartedness um, about healing our divided lives, our exhausted and divided lives, 
Um, I did a little Lenten devotional that I self-published, and then most recently this book called When Narcissism Comes to Church, which is, um, I always say, is uh, probably the hardest to write because of um, my own experiences with with narcissism in the church, trauma, um, and having to wade into the waters of other people's stories and hear, hear their experiences. Mm. So um, a lot easier to write a book called Wholeheartedness than it is to write a book on trauma. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely my experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and it sounds like it's quite a personal book as well. That you know, that there's a lot of a lot of you in this book and a lot of your story um, in this book. I mean, I haven't read it, but I'm, it sounds like it from what you're all talking about. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there are a couple of things that I didn't want to do, and I didn't want it to become about uh, particular people or particular names. Um, uh, I, I didn't want it to be an expose on this major figure or that big pastor mm. or something like that. I also didn't want it to be uh, a book about me that felt a little bit narcissistic in a way, you know, to say, hey, well, here's my story. But it, I, I think when you write, you know this as a writer, you can't help but show up in the work. And Absolutely, uh, yeah. I think part, part of my interest in this work, uh, it stems from being a, a seminary student in the mid-1990s who was called out by a professor of counseling. Uh, this professor saw me as a young, arrogant, very certain, very dogmatic, uh, uh, mid twenty seminary student and named it and, and, and really named he really said you're going to be dangerous to the church if you graduate and you go on into ministry you'll be dangerous um, and that uh, you know I probably a lot of people would push back but I had this deep sense of conviction and I thought you're right what do I do and uh, you know I, I think I cried most of the next hour. <laughs> And then uh, I ended up getting to my own therapy and doing a, a mental health counseling uh, master's degree uh, and almost immediately began working with women who had been abused by male narcissists, um, often spiritual leaders, spiritual abusers, pastors, um, and then working with men who were doing the abusing. And, uh, you know, this was probably I was 28, 29, 30 years old when I first started doing this work, and I didn't have a clue what I was doing, and I felt completely overwhelmed. So now I feel like maybe I know a little bit more on the verge of 50, but my goodness, um, it, this is just a painfully difficult work. Mm. Yeah, it really is. I mean, narcissism is a, a big, big, big topic in itself. It's yeah, And of course, in a position like um, pastor in a in a in a church, um, especially in a kind of an evangelical style of church that you that you have in more in the states probably than over here, um, but it still happens in the UK. I'm not like discounting that at all because I'm yeah. well, I know it does because I've experienced it. But um, but yeah, it seems like it's, there's just this big temptation to <laughs> um, you know to develop this. Um, narcissism or for narcissism to thrive because yeah. because you have white men mainly white men who are in positions of a lot of power and a lot of authority over a lot of people um, mm -hmm. and it can and lots of people who are saying yes to them and 
that's a really and especially when it's patriarchal theology as well yeah. um, that that adds to it as well I suspect doesn't yeah. it so I, I, one one piece of the book that I only hint at but I wish I could have done more with is I think this emerges out of a you know hundred year old story in in America at least you know the American story of narcissism uh, as you know a white chosen people. <laughs> with a grand sense of entitlement, um, uh, occupied a country where natives lived, right? And, and um, mm. with a sense of a kind of manifest destiny, you know, with a sense of entitlement. And, um, uh, you know, n- now we talk often about American exceptionalism, um, a, a mm. sense of um, almost like a divine right to uh, enjoy the kinds of freedoms and uh, privileges that we have here with very little humility, you know, and I think, uh, no wonder uh, the evangelical church would thrive here in the United States, no wonder um, particular churches and particular white male pastors would rise uh, in, a, in a context like this um, and, and see themselves as, as the chosen, the blessed, the anointed, you know, uh, to, to speak on behalf of God, uh, the word of the Lord for the people of God, right? Mm, I, yeah. I think it's I, it's not, of course, it's not a uniquely American phenomenon, but I, I really do think that we're like a, a perfect petri dish for a particular American evangelical form of narcissism. Yeah, and I guess when you're in that kind of situation and culture, it makes perfect sense that, a, that you would get a president who is a narcissist as well. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, that's it's almost it's almost a almost inevitable you know that at some point that those people who are themselves narcissists and white male narcissists would end up supporting somebody who is themselves a narcissist um it's yeah it's uh yeah you're right it doesn't just exist in america that's for sure but but you're right given the cultural background that you talk about which is i think is really interesting in itself it's a kind of um like it's a recipe for for that to thrive isn't it it's just a it's like a perfect storm yeah yeah it is and and um you know we've it, it uh i like i say this is a kind of unique petri dish uh where mm. a, a kind of american optimism um a, a, a sense of manifest destiny a sense that we're entitled to um uh to what we want uh, it, it, we see it in church planting. I mean, I, I, one of the things I say in there is I've done um, uh, clinical assessments for church planters for many, many years. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not at all against uh, church, healthy church planting, but there is a kind of culture, evangelical culture of church planting here, where it is, it can be a kind of ecclesial colonialism, um, where mm-hmm. we go into the city and um, uh you know, we plant ourselves, and we tell them um, how they should uh, be, believe, vote, look, um, worship, etc., uh, with, with no mind to what they need, what's going on there already, who lives there, uh, and, 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 and this has been on repeat for many, many years, and I, I mm. think we have this sense that we can do this because we live in this um, radically sort of dualistic reality of saved and unsaved and so if they're going to hell and there's great urgency well yeah we we've got to go in and we've got to share the gospel and we've got to do it as urgently and as quickly as possible yeah uh 
and we've got to do it with some sort of force, you know, and behind every narcissist is a sense of grand, grandiosity, a sense of power, a sense of force, right? Mm. Um, and, you know, we follow leaders like that because they are, they're effective. We use words like effective and successful in these spaces. Yeah. And we don't, we don't step back to ask the question, is any of this at all healthy or good or right or a vision of flourishing? Um, and that's really a problem. It is. It really is. Uh, yeah. And, it's, and the thing with narcissism as well, it's so difficult to spot in yourself. Yeah. It's so difficult to notice it in yourself. You can you can act in a narcissistic way without being a narcissist. Um, and you know, if you're privileged especially, it's very easy to act in a way which is narcissistic without actually knowing you've done it in the first place. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and that's the problem, like in especially you know, like you say, if we're in positions of power, it's then it's very difficult for that to be noticed by by anybody. And yeah. so it can then end up going out of control it's, a, it's like a drug it's like an addiction um, mm. particularly when we're talking about narcissistic personality disorder and I make that distinction in the book that, that there's a there, there are plenty of us who have narcissistic traits and that doesn't necessarily mean that we are mm. diagnosably narcissistic personality uh, disorder and in fact, in fact I think that, that those of us who have narcissistic traits tend to be more humble more curious if someone comes for instance, I've got a policy that I've had for many years in my work where I invite people who work for me or report to me or even students to, to share with me how they experience me. And they, they've got every freedom to come and say, hey, um, in a meeting today, you felt like a little distant or you felt a little bit like a bully or whatever it might be, you know. And someone with narcissistic personality disorder just isn't curious like that, right? They're not willing mm -hmm. to engage that conversation and so they're largely unaware, much like an addict, largely unaware of the debris field of harm around them, um, mm. what's going on inside of them. Yeah, and that's a really important distinction to make because, uh, and that's something that I, I'm still learning about as well, that there's a distinction between you know, narcissistic personality disorder and having narcissistic tendencies, which you can, which yeah. you can manage and control and regulate and... Yeah. you know and kind of weed out in a, in a sense um, yeah. which is yeah. the example that you just used it's, it's like saying having people who are who you're accountable to who will tell you the truth and um, will will tell you the truth I hate to say the truth in love but that's what it is um, you know, he will just tell you the truth as a, and and you listen to that and use it as an opportunity to grow and to learn and to listen you know and that's that's very different from having this narcissistic personality disorder um. Yeah. Yeah, and and I, I think that one of the things I wanted to avoid in writing about this is I, I didn't want to be hopeless. Um, uh, I, I, mm. I really I've, I've worked with plenty of people and I've had hard conversations with lots of pastors over the years and I've I've seen uh, many many examples of pastors who who uh, maybe stepped away from ministry for a time or not just pastors, but leaders in general, even mm. uh, religious leaders, but even corporate leaders and stuff who I've worked with who, who said, yeah, I, I see that I have a toxic uh, impact on my people and I need to do some work. There are plenty of stories like that. I think what's hard is when we bump up against, you know, and you mentioned we see this in our president here in the United States now, we bump up against people who lack any curiosity 
Um, it doesn't seem like there is the possibility of any humility or curiosity. And, you know, I'll be doing work, maybe consulting with a large church or something, and I'll be working with a senior pastor. And it will always, there'll be this sort of scapegoating thing that goes on. Well, it's her, it's him, it's the, it's the committee's fault, it's the, you know, whatever. It's never him. Um, and uh, so... Yeah, we, we really, in doing this work, we really look for a kind of basic humility and curiosity that we all should have, right? We, sh- we should all cultivate in our own lives. But in particular, you don't see among really influential leaders in the church today at times. Absolutely, yeah, that's right. You, you don't see it. Uh, it's, and that's dangerous. It's really dangerous. People get hurt. I mean, like, I mean even yourself, you talked about you, you've had experience of... Of being hurt by by this, I mean, like, I mean, what was what was what was that like to experience? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I've had a number of different stories uh, that I that I could talk about of uh, particular people who I've um, I've known in ministry or worked alongside, uh, mm. where I've experienced what I call uh, the bite of narcissism. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it feels like a knife in your side. Sometimes it feels like a two by four between your eyes, but. Um, you know, for me, I often talk about, uh, I'll talk about the characteristics of a narcissistic leader, but I think sometimes it's even more important to talk about how we experience it. Uh, and, and in the book, I talk about spiritual abuse and emotional abuse, gaslighting. You know, for me, uh, there was a sense when, when I was in a system like this years ago of, of feeling powerless of feeling confused at times, um, feeling kind of crazy. That's the gaslighting effect. It, it may, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Um, after all, I'm young. I'm new to ministry. It must be my fault. Um, uh, of, of feeling um, during that season really insecure. Uh, I mean, I think we're both Enneagram 4s, right? Yeah, that's uh, what I'm Enneagram 4, yeah. Uh, yeah, and underneath, I like to, when I teach on the Enneagram, I like to talk about, you know, under, underneath the 4, 2s, 3s, and 4s, there's some shame. And yeah. uh, at least in my story, there's some shame and insecurity. And the narcissistic leader preyed on that in me. And, uh, you know, and, and so, and then, and at least for me, there was some volatility uh, as I reacted to it. And so he could point to me and say, well, it's him. It's his fault. He's emotional. He's reactive. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I've got to put him in his place. And so um, it, can, it can be a really traumatic uh, and painful experience to be led or in a relationship, a marriage relationship, whatever it might be, with a narcissist. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I can't imagine... I can't imagine what that, what that's like. I mean, I, I, my I was in a church led by. I don't know whether I call them a narcissist, certainly, but there were there were there was, it was very centralized control. It was all, yeah, um, yeah. you believe what they what you're told to believe. Um, you use the language that you're told to use. You don't question what the pastor says. All kind of very passive aggressive. You know, not. Overtly, not a you know, not not a, not um, in your face kind of thing. Um, very subtle, but that's what happened, and it happened to me and other people. Uh, and I didn't realize how much it affected me until after I left. To be honest, like it was yeah. having a physical effect on me, um, yeah. as well as a, an emotional, mental effect. 
and I only yeah. realised that after I left that it was that that's what it was. It was like the physical a physical symptom of like I feeling like I was wearing a straitjacket. Yeah. Not being able to be me. Yeah. Um, and that's what that was. And I don't know whether I'm I'm not I'm not somebody who could who could diagnose narcissistic personality disorder, but there were certainly some narcissistic traits being exhibited in a very yeah. passive aggressive kind of way. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's often it. Oftentimes, my conversations with people in spiritual direction or counseling will will get around to narcissism eventually, but it often begins with the trauma. Yeah, I mean, what you're naming is a kind of trauma, you know, mm. a small T trauma. And, you know, the, the whole trauma conversation is a fairly new one in, in the world that I'm in. Uh, we used to think about trauma in terms of PTSD and survivors of, of natural disasters and wars and things like that, but now we realize that there's a small T trauma that we can experience after uh, situations where we feel betrayed or we feel um, mm. undermined or abandoned or uh, uh, confused in one way or another, abused. So, I mean, I, 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 you know, your story, we have to get into your story in more detail, but when you talk about feeling like you're in a straitjacket, you know, the constriction of that, I think, well, okay, I want to hear more about that physically, physiologically, emotionally. What does that feel like? And, and oftentimes as we draw out these, these kinds of uh, symptoms and manifestations of trauma, we realize, ah, yeah, so you, you actually were in a, maybe in a system that had narcissistic, narcissistic features, you know, in a system that was highly controlling or mm. patriarchal or hierarchical, whatever it might have been. Yeah, some of those things were true. I don't think it, was, it wasn't patriarchal. It was my, I think it was more like hierarchical, quite controlling. Yeah, that was. Yeah, and I remember because I, and the, the only time I noticed this was when I, I I went to a different spiritual community. I was trying new spiritual communities, and I've told this story on the podcast before. And I went to I went to this new place, and I remember physically breathing out mm. the first time I went, and just feeling like I could breathe out and be safe. Yeah, and I was like, "Oh my god, I haven't done that in church for years." Yeah. Like, I haven't just breathed out an hour to be me. Like, yeah. And then, and I was still in between at the time. And, I, and again, I said this before, but um, for people who listen regularly, but I, the next week I went back to my other church, and that's when I realised, "Oh my god, I'm physically all bound up. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm tense. I'm my chest is tight." Um, and painful, like I'm, I'm, I can't, and like not able to say what I'm, what yeah. I want to say. I can't be me. I've got to put on an act for people, and yeah. speak the language of the church so that everyone thinks I'm still okay. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I was doing every week, uh, and and that was kind of when I, it hit me just how big the trauma this had been, and I hadn't even realised it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it. And and. Um I, I will hear people say, well, it wasn't that bad. You know, I'm handling it fine. Mm. And and yet we find these things popping up in different places or spaces. I was talking to someone recently who said, yeah, I haven't had a good night's sleep for the last six months. And we traced it back to something that had happened about six or seven months ago. And she said, I never would have guessed that. I thought that maybe I was drinking too much caffeine or I thought that maybe I was eating something. or, You know, and so we, we traced these things back and... Again, it's it's not to you know it's not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. It's not to say church is terrible, pastors are terrible. It is to say that there's a problem, and uh, you know 
part of my my job is to name the problem, you know, as a therapist, but as a as an author too, to sort of provide a diagnostic through a book to say, hey, wait, I want to name the reality of narcissism in the church, narcissistic abuse, uh, so that people. I, I, I keep saying to people when they ask, like, what, what, what's your hope for writing a book on narcissism in the church? And I, I want people to say, I'm not crazy. I'm just not crazy. I thought I was going crazy. I thought it was me. And I want them to say, no, maybe, maybe you're experiencing something that, uh, that you've got to reckon with that actually happened to you. And that's not the pain everyone is victims, right? You know, you get that sometimes, right? It's just to say, let's, let's just take our stories of pain Seriously, you know, I was working with a woman who she was raised in a church that was, was very complementary and very patriarchal, and uh, she now, at the age of forty-five, has no voice. You know, and I'm, I'm not trying to turn her away from Jesus or away from the church. I'm just trying to say, hey, let's let's take seriously the reality that um, your experience, your lived experience for forty-five years is um, you should be seen but not heard from. Uh, you you don't have a voice, you don't have a vote, you don't get to speak in an elder meeting, you don't get to go up front, you don't get to teach, you're silent. So what does that do? Let's just be curious about what does that do to a human being when you're effectively told, you know, in the name of Jesus and by the word of God, you're, you, you ought to be silent. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are hard conversations to have. They really are. They really are. Especially when you can't, when people can't see it's happening to them. Uh, and yeah it's really sad because when you've been through it and you come out the other side and you can see it for what it is and then you see it happening to other people and they can't see what it is yeah that's really sad because you can't just tell people they have yeah. to they have to learn it for themselves but yeah. it's yeah it's a difficult thing <laughs> yeah it sure is, and and some will resist it. You know, it's it's always interesting to me to hear from people who will say to me after some time, you know, I'll be doing this work with a married couple, and and she'll be <clears throat> experiencing the narcissistic abuse of her husband, and and eventually, I, I mean, I've had plenty of folks say, um, you know what, it's better than not being married, um, or it's better than not being in the church, or it's better than, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. And I think it's sad when when folks. Uh, choose to continue to engage in in toxic systems or narcissistic or abusive systems um, thinking there's really nothing better um, I, 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 uh, I worked with a guy who was actually a priest in the Catholic Church um, he was gay and he wasn't out obviously and um, he was wrestling through the reality of what it's been for the last 20 years to be a gay priest in the Catholic Church um, and uh, he said something to the effect uh, I think quoting an early church father that the, the church is a bride and a whore, but she's my whore, you know. And I, I thought there's something about that that uh, I get why you're saying it, but, uh, but, but it's, he said it with a sense of, um, well, I guess I just have to take it. I guess I just have to, you know, kind of take the abuse, be silent. Uh, so it's it's really... Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of stories I could tell, James. <laughs> it's one of the things, it's one of the vocational hazards, maybe, is that like now I've got like 13,000 stories to tell about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I know, and it must be, it must be really difficult, I mean, especially as an Enneagram 4, to yeah. hear those stories and not internalise a lot of that. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, how do you manage to take on... I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm assuming that you have your own therapy and stuff as well because therapists <laughs> yeah. have to have therapists, right? But, yeah. but, um, yeah. but how do you manage to process all those stories without... I mean, without it affecting you too much? Yeah. Well, I mean, you just said it. I mean, I think we need, we need therapists, spiritual directors, uh, friends, spouses in some cases where we can share ourselves. You know, I... I think mm. there is, uh, early on, what, one of the things that I saw in myself and we see in therapists and spiritual directors early on and pastors is that they they feel like they've got to be a savior. You know, they have to take everything on and, and they carry their, you know, 10 counseling sessions from the day into the next day into the next day. And then we see a kind of vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, things like that happen. And, and so generally... We face this early on in our, our work. Within the first two to three years, we face our limitations. And some people are driven away from the work, and some people actually do the inner work. And I had to, you know, probably around the age of 30, 31, 32, had to start doing some really significant work around uh, t- carrying all this home every night when I had two young children. And uh, I was just grumpy all the time, and I felt like I, I'm not helping um, I, I'm a terrible pastor, I'm a terrible therapist, I don't know how to help, I'm, you know, so we get our own help at that point, and, uh, you know, I think for me now, uh, there is this sense, every time I, I sit with someone, look back, spend 45 minutes talking to someone about their life in a therapy session, I, that when I'm done, um, I, I can leave that, I can open my hands in a posture of surrender and leave that conversation there, because there's very little I can do. I have far less control than I thought I did at the age of 30, you know. And so I, I, can't, I can't control their destiny, the outcomes of, of the choices that they make that week. I can just sort of faithfully show up when we do have our time together and then show up the next time. And, and then I, I almost, sometimes after counseling sessions, I open my hands. Uh, they don't see it sometimes, but I open my hands in a, in a way of saying, like, I'm letting go of control now. Mm. Um, I carry this with me, and that's a really healthy position to be in when you're able to let that that stuff go and just surrender. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a really healthy place place yeah. to be. I mean, how 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 did how how did I mean? Often I I I've done a lot of writing, and I know that writing can be quite therapeutic and quite healing, and um, in terms of especially when it comes to trauma and, and all of that kind of thing. I mean, how how has this book been helpful for you in terms of processing a lot of things that you were carrying? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I, didn't, I didn't know it at the outset. You know, books take about three years from start to finish in, uh, in some cases, you know, and I, I don't think I really knew at the outset that it would be helpful. But I, I think there's something to say about, like, just defining things um, uh, I, you know, I sometimes I think for fours we experience a kind of chaos within. Mm. Um, there's lots of disorder, and it's almost like an inner house cleaning. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this coat that's on the floor and I hang it on the hook. I'm gonna take this box and I'm gonna put it on the shelf. And it was almost like that for me, where I I had some hooks to hang things on. Um, in naming some things and providing some categories uh, and telling some stories, just sort of like I sorted things out within. And uh, I walked away more clear. Because I, I, I do think 
people are surprised by this because I've been doing this work for a while, and and um, they'll think you know they'll think at some point that you're an expert or that you're uh, that you've somehow gotten over stuff. You know, like that that story I just told about surrendering is like that I do that perfectly or really well, or I don't carry things into other places or I don't get triggered or. And the, the reality is, is all those things happen and, and even then some. And, and so this was yet another part of the process of growing up, which feels like still, uh, you know, the Buddhists call it beginner's mind. I, I still feel like as the older I get, the more I become a beginner at this stuff. But um, it, it was a way of just sort of naming some things and um, recognizing that, uh, that I wasn't, I, I guess you might resonate with this as a four- I wasn't as broken as I thought I was. Um, I have more, a bit more clarity. Um, I actually have some things to say <laughs> because the narrative inside my soul will always be: you're a fraud, you're a phony, you have nothing to say, you have, you have no capacity to help anyone. <laughs> and I got done with this, and I thought, I think this is helpful. I remember telling my wife, I think this is actually a helpful book. You know, five seconds after that, I thought it's probably not. But um, you know, on my better days, I think it's. I, I think I, it's been helpful, and, and in that sense, it's, I've sorted some things out internally. That's really encouraging, uh, and you're right about that. But that that four thing, <laughs> yeah. And when I'm when I'm working on my book, and um, yeah, even with the podcast, and I feel like oh, I'm just a just a fool. I'm not really. I don't really know what I'm doing. Everyone thinks I do, and I don't. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have those moments as well. I think yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of creative people have those moments, actually. Yeah. Um, it's more common than you think. It's being human, I think. It's knowing, it's knowing something about our own human limitations and the journey of humility. I hope you know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, what would you want to say to people who might be in a situation where they're dealing with a, a you know, a narcissistic pastor or? Um, right. Your partner, even who's 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 you know, got narcissistic personality disorder, who's acting in a very narcissistic way, and it's and a, and a suffering as a as a result of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, one of the things I often say is it's uh, it's it is crazy making and it is traumatizing to be in that kind of situation. Um, circumstance, organization, relationship, whatever it might be. Uh, you know, we we humans, we've got pretty sophisticated coping strategies to deal with these kinds of things. Um, and so we might even think that we're dealing okay with it. But I, I think it's really important to take seriously in, the impact of, of a narcissistic leader or organization or any kind of abusive relationship or organizational space or institution. So um, I think that, that uh, there's an invitation there for us to go and seek out help, uh, to, to seek out a therapist, psychologist, a friend who gets some of this stuff, a pastor who understands these dynamics, a spiritual director, and to share our story and to find some, uh, you know, to employ those God-given mirror neurons, you know, and to be heard, to be seen, to be heard, to be validated, to be empathized with, um, I think for me, there have been times where I've simply just needed people in front of me to say, I see you, um, and you're not wrong, um, and you're in pain, or whatever it might be, you know, mm. it's just yeah. it's helpful. It's really helpful, and so 
too often I see people in, in situations where they're dealing with maybe a, a pastor who's narcissistic or a system that's toxic, and they feel like they've got to confront it or challenge it or um, right to ship or uh, enact new policy or try to set up another structure. And they do this alone, uh, without support, and they get crushed. And they'll come to me and they'll say, oh, I tried to do the best I could. I, I had good intentions, didn't I? And I said, yeah, you had really good intentions, but, but you're alone in it. And um, it's really hard to do this when you're alone. You don't have uh, uh, allies around you when you don't have um, a therapist in your court you can go back and process with and say, hey, this is what happened this week. And so it's sort of like what they say on airplanes, at least in the United States, put the oxygen on your face before you put it on your child's face, you know, and get, get the oxygen that you need, do the, do the inner work uh, that you need to do of, of centering, of meditating, of, of praying, of mindfulness work, of therapy, of spiritual direction so that you're grounded, so that you know how you're impacted, so that you know how your body is impacted by trauma. And you could say in the midst of the situation, I'm, I'm kind of activated or I'm kind of triggered right now. I need to step back. Then you make good decisions. You know, so you've got to do some work to get to a healthy space, I'd say. That's really good advice. That's really good advice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do a lot of self-care. Um, yeah. Take care of yourself first. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. I always say that when we talk about these kind of things on the podcast. You know, get professional support. Have good community around you, people you can trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and be safe with. And get all of those things if you can yeah. because um, they they really do help um, yeah. with any kind of trauma really so oh this has been a really good conversation I really yeah. um, been really great um, what's uh, what's one thing that you'd like people to take away from the book yeah yeah so I, I guess I'd sum it up um, with those three words you're not crazy you know, I, I really do hope that people who read it will walk away um, and they'll they'll think to themselves, well, maybe I'm not crazy. You know, I, I thought, you know, I was, I was an assistant pastor at that church for 10 years, and I thought, well, maybe it is me. Or I was married to that narcissistic man for 15 years, and I thought, well, maybe it is me. Or I was in that abusive organization, whatever it is, you know, that they'd walk away and they, they'd have a sense of, um, maybe I'm not crazy, uh, and, and maybe with that, some humility, you know, to begin to do the, the long and deep work. Uh, it, it's, it's not healthy, and you can't spend a whole lot of time um, uh, in, in your pain. Uh, I, I remember after a season of experiencing this, I was in a lot of pain, and all I could think of was retribution. I mean, I thought about a thousand different ways to hurt uh, the, the person and, and organization that I was a part of. And uh, that's just toxic to your soul. You know, you can't live like that for very long. Um, but when you're betrayed, it, that's normal. That's, I mean, who doesn't experience some of that? And so uh, I, I hope that people would have a sense that I'm not crazy. Um, there's a pathway forward for me. I could get some help. Um, and uh, there's actually healing on the other side of this as well. And I think they experienced that. I've, I've done what I, I wanted to do in, in the book. Uh, so I think that would be it, James. Great. Yeah, that sounds really encouraging. I, 
I really can't wait to read it. I'm really, I'm sad I haven't been able to read it already. It's just it didn't come out in the UK yet. Yeah. <laughs> I pre-ordered my copy and I, and I wait. I was hoping to get it before we we did this, but um, but uh, now I'm even more excited to read it actually. Yeah. So um, I'm, yeah, and yeah, you can get that wherever books books are found. Mm-hmm. Um, and and how can people connect with you on online? Yeah, well, so I've got a website, chuckdegroat.net. Uh, Degroat is spelled D-E-G-R-O-A-T. So chuckdegroat.net. And there there I've got some writings and resources and stuff like that. Uh, but I'm on Twitter. I'm on uh, at chuckdegroat on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, places like that. All the usual places where you and I go back and forth with each other on Twitter and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, well, thank you for coming on the show and talking about this. It's been yeah, a really great you. conversation. Yeah, oh, you're welcome. Absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. I'd love. To, yeah, I, it's a really important topic, and um, yeah. I'm glad we got to talk about it. Yeah. So thank you. Thanks. And thanks for listening, everybody. Um, I really hope this was uh, helpful for you as well. <laughs>